Hello, everyone, and welcome to Living in This Queer Body, a podcast about barriers to embodiment and how our collective body stories can bring us back to ourselves. I am Asher Panjuris, and we are still living in pandemic times. Um, I hope everyone is finding some ways to access ease and comfort in this very distressing and uh, upsetting time. Uh, I'm doing okay. I am an immunocompromised person, so this has been, I would say that the one of the stressful things about this time is that my hypervigilance um, has increased as a result of feeling more um, vulnerable um, to COVID-19. Um, of course, I'm also devastated by uh, the way that our so-called government is um, handling this moment, but uh, pretty much forever how it's functioned um, or not functioned, functioned for the privileged and not for anyone else. I certainly, despite my um, immunocompromised status, certainly can uh, say that I'm extremely privileged as a person who in the day-to-day -day has to worry about um, just making sure I'm healthy enough and grounded enough to work, um, continue working from home and to try to survive uh, homeschooling my child. Um, virtual school is no joke and is not something I ever thought I would have to do. Um, so I, a special shout out to parents out there, but of course anyone who is, um, anyone and everyone who's listening. I am sending um, ease and thoughts of comfort your way. Um, if you haven't already, there have been some beautiful mini episodes that I've released in the Living in Our Queer Bodies in Pandemic Times series. Most recently, my friend Cassie shared what they learned in the process of recovering from COVID-19. If anyone would like to join this project, it's really easy and I'd love to hear from any and all of you. Um, just record a one to two minute voice memo on your phone and email it to me at livinginthisqueerbody at gmail.com. Uh, I guess you can do it not on your phone too. Wherever you can record something simple, a simple file and send it to me, that would be great. Um, I'll include my email address again in the episode notes. So on to this episode. This episode was recorded many months ago and in it, uh, Shira Ehrlichman and I talk about what it means to not be able to outrun her bipolar diagnosis and the long process of acceptance that followed this confronting reality. Shira shares about her early childhood growing up in Israel, um, noticing as a radical act, the mind is queer, and a lot more. I am such a fan of Shira's book, Odes to Lithium. 
her poetry, and most recently, I've taken such pleasure in watching her daily Instagram stories in which she prepares iced coffee. It is so deeply satisfying and tender and fierce and interesting all at the same time. Um, so it's wonderful. Uh, Shira Ehrlichman is a poet, musician, and visual artist. She was born in Israel and immigrated to the United States when she was six. Her poems explore recovery of language, of home, of mind, and value the scattered wholeness of healing. She earned her BA at Hampshire College and has been awarded the James Merrill Fellowship by the Vermont Studio Center, the Visions of Wellbeing Focus Fellowship at Air Serenby, as well as a residency by the Malay Colony. Her work has been featured in BuzzFeed Reader, The Rumpus, PBS's NewsHour poetry series, The Huffington Post, The Seattle Times, and The New York Times, among others. Her debut poetry book, Odes to Lithium, was released in 2019. It's available everywhere. It is just a deeply moving book. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, she's also the author and illustrator of the picture book, Behold. When not on tour, she lives in Brooklyn where she teaches writing and creates. And I hope you all enjoy this episode and continue to take good care of yourselves and others during this time. So Shira, thank you for joining me. I really appreciate it. My total pleasure. And I am a, I'm a very big fan of your writing and admire what you're doing a lot. So I'm really looking forward to kind of talking to you about it more. I think for, we will talk a bit about your book, but I also mm -hmm. know that you have spoken a lot about your book and there's a lot written about your book and um and the book I'm speaking about is Odes to Lithium um a book of poetry and it's beautiful and deeply it, it was deeply impactful to me and also just thinking about the patients that I have worked with or continue to work with it mm -hmm. it is a really important piece of work and so I am honored to be talking to you um and so we will talk a little bit about it but I also encourage everyone to just go out and read it and um and yeah so we'll get started with I guess the question that I start every interview with which is <laughs> what is your one of your earliest memories of learning about being in a body yeah. Some of my earliest memories, um, just because I happened to be until I was six years old in Israel, big place in Israel. Mm. And we lived there during the Gulf War. And yes. I think I'm I'm still processing some of the effects of war on my young psyche. Um yes. I didn't, I didn't think much about it as a kid or as a teen or even as a twenty something year old, but as I got into my mid twenties. Um, 
I started to think, like, wow, my, my body, not just my memories, but my body had, uh, there's residue from being mm. uh, rushed in the middle of the night during a siren to the basement to put on gas masks with my family and the effects of such intense uh, startle and mm. fear. And mm-hmm. so I think there's, there's this dual, there's, there's dual memories that are both really intense in terms of physical, like, fright. But then there's also the other side of that dual is um, physical memories of just intensity, intense color, um, and mm. being a very thin aesthetic child, which I also wonder, again, if, if war was a part of that mapping to make me so deeply synesthetic. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I remember, like, there were roses in front of our house, and I just, to see a rose, like, to see those roses was, like, a very visceral, physical feeling. It wasn't just my eyes. It was, like, my whole body and spirit was seeing that red, and we had lemon trees in our, in our backyard, and I remember the lemons, just how they looked and the physical feeling, not just of the color, but the weight and the shape, uh, which is, mm-hmm. I believe, you know, an artist's inclination is to feel the weight and texture uh, of objects, not just, oh, this is a lemon, lemon, L-E-M-O-N, that's a lemon, mm-hmm. right? But instead mm-hmm. to be like, it's globular, it's round, it's, you know, I can sense that it's kind of pockmarked, it's lime yellow, uh, and so I think from very early on, I have intense memories of being deeply synesthetic where color was almost an attack <laughs> and mm. also having just a, a really powerful imagination where, um, that I didn't really lose even deep into adulthood where, for example, like I can't watch horror movies because the imagery is so physical for me that I can't let go. It's like a crab that hooks onto me. I just like, it Mm -hmm. won't release me. Um, And so I have to be really careful and thoughtful about what what I take in. And I think that that sensitivity is, I link it to being a sensitive kid because I had to experience some sensitive things like war. But, but I also link it to, um, I don't know, just a synaptic spiritual delight in being here that has Mm. carried over. Mm. Do you remember feeling or being aware that you, the way you experienced maybe let's say these objects or the world around you, did it feel like you were experiencing it with a a kind of intensity or on a different like register than, than the people around you? Like, were you aware of that at the time or were you able to, I don't know. I'm just thinking of a lot of people that I've interviewed and this question often leads people to talking about some kind of like sense sense memory right you know and mm-hmm. like laying in a bed of flowers and and like distinctly <laughs> remembering like what that felt like or and and not having any kind of self self-awareness around that being like s- somewhat different or yeah so I guess I'm just wondering if you had had a sense of of maybe the distinctness or with which you were experiencing the world? Yeah, I think that's a really beautiful question. Um, And I I think the simple answer is like, no, there was no awareness that this might be different. There was no awareness that it was heightened even. 
Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And, and even, even today, if I reflect on it today, I'm not certain that that experience that I had is really that different from any other child who sure. is, who is like building synapses around this new place and it's firing at a very high rate. I think sure. of course trauma or difficulty can kind of elevate that or make it even more of a, of a resonance or an echo uh, yes. in the body or, or trap it or do some things to it. But I like to think that, you know, if, if anything, I had a lot of adults around me who, like my parents really let me, um, they let me do my thing, like in my bedroom, like drawing or playing with dolls. Like they really didn't interfere in my world making. And I think that that's kind of rare is to have like adults who will leave you alone right. to kind of be your sensory self. So I, as I've gotten older, I felt like, wow, that's really a wonderful thing that my parents provided for me where they weren't like good job, bad job. They were just like, do it. You know, we're not going to like put a judgment on it. Just, just enjoy yourself. Um, and then I also had adults, like, as I was growing up, you know, tell me I was more sensitive, tell me I was more mature. Um, and so it was more from feedback that I would get adults saying, you know, in the report card, method of child or a particularly <laughs> in tune, kind teacher saying like, Shira has this maturity level that I'm seeing through her expression, through her poems, mm-hmm. through her whatever. Um, mm-hmm. I didn't sense any kind of difference though at all. I mean, I sense gender difference and I sense being an older sister and I sense being an immigrant, but I, I like to think that I think I'm sort of split on it where maybe I truly do have more sensitivity and I, and I feel things at a different rate or maybe we all feel it, but it gets a little bit gauzed up or bandaged up because we are, trying to be functional adults or functional teenagers and that that is not allowed expression and mine I either created it for myself or had my parents um or artistic spaces that really promoted me being the way I was mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah yeah I think yeah that makes a lot of sense it's it's interesting to hear you reflect on that because I mean as a parent myself I I <laughs> am very intimately like trapped you know, this sounds, sorry <laughs> to my child, it sounds creepy, but like, I'm very, like, I think I'm very intimately kind of like tracking the level to which she is. Um, she's also a very kind of not, she's a very quote unquote sensitive, but like super creative, super weird kid in the best mm-hmm. sort of way. Mm-hmm. Amazing. But I'm kind of tracking the way that that is either, you know, she allows that to be very expansive and the ways Mm. in which it kind of gets, as you said, gauzed up or like sort of tamped down already, Mm. you know, like the Mm -hmm. the forces that are already kind of like limiting her, that full range of expressiveness. And as a parent, that's something that like, you know, I have some control over, but I don't in a lot of other ways, you know, there's social demands and all sorts of structures that kind of either, I certainly try to like help promote her being in structures and spaces where that can kind of continue to be related to as a generative part of who she is. Um, right. And yeah, so it's just, it's interesting to hear you reflect on it. It, it makes me, I guess it makes me think a little bit about um, how, I guess this is fast forwarding quite a bit, but how <laughs> you kind of came to feel 
at all if or what comes to mind when you think about like a version of being tamped down or constricted or the sort of rude awakening of some limitation to that that nature of how you how you related to the world so meaning like when did I start to realize that adults were or whoever was like doing that to me maybe yeah yeah or that you were feeling expectate, yeah, that there were expectations yeah. that you were, you know, kind of feeling limited by. Um, yeah. Well, that's, you know, there are some things where, as I said, I'll reflect and be like, that was sort of extraordinary. Like, that my parents really created so much room. And they're both mm-hmm. like, you know, they were wor- working this. They weren't like both artists. They were both like you know, working hard and they mm-hmm. still need so much room for artistic expression. Everyone in my family plays an instrument. They play music. Music is on all the time. Like it was not extracurricular. It was a part of the fabric of the household. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's one really exceptional part of the ways that I was fostered to be. Yeah. Um, not, not gossed over. But then I think what also happened either as a result of that or because they saw this already in me and wanted to protect it is that I had a real mistrust of other adults besides my parents. Like I, mm. meaning if I was in a class um, and it felt like BS, like even as an eight year old, I, I really, really felt it. Like I didn't, I was like, why are we doing our multiplication tables? Or like, why are we doing, like it was very much a, a questioning. And mm-hmm. I distinctly remember an art teacher who she told us all to do a paper mache of our faces. This is probably in third grade. So eight years old, we did a paper mache of each of our faces. And then she said to paint it, you know, to how you look. So what do you look like? And I remember I painted mine like swirls of blue, swirls of purple, white little starburst, um, very kind of like incoherent, but like, you know, magical to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't notice, I wasn't paying attention that other people had not, done a internal experience of what they thought they looked like. They were doing like eyelashes and eyeballs and lips. And she came over to me and said, this is like such an opportunity as a teacher to engage, right? And she said, this is not right. You have to paint over it. You have to do your face Mm. as you see it. And I remember this is the part that kind of startled me is I remember being like, wow, like you ain't shit. Like, I don't, Mm. I I know, I know you're wrong. I know you're wrong. And you know, I'm a teacher, and part of my task as a writing teacher is to point out the art teachers or whoever it was, the voices that said that thing, that for some people, there wasn't that strength or protection around them to yeah. to notice that this is bullshit. Uh, and so together, when I work on one or in classes, it's, it's to rebuild that and have that learning moment that she missed, that teacher, to yeah. say, why, why do you see the world this way? I'm so curious about that. Mm-hmm. And God, that's so unique. I would love to know why purple, why blue, why is it twirling, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so offering that to oneself um, is unfortunately, I mean, we're all relearning it all the time. I mean, if you go on Instagram, sure. there's luckily so many people that are a part of the movement of reclamation of just reclaiming. You see people who are like fighting fat phobia, fighting misogyny, fighting all kinds of things through reclamation, through going back into that moment that was so incredibly 
or many moments that were so incredibly damaging and earning your own worthiness back, getting it back. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, as the long answer is to say that um, it, it had its ups and downs throughout my life, but for the most part, and it was really strengthened by my parents, my brother, people who loved me, um, I really had a sense that, like, art is untouchable and no one can really... Uh, people can mold you, they can give you feedback, they can affect it, but you have to be strong in your in your art making. Mm-hmm. You have to be really close to it and intimate with it. Otherwise, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> it sounds so mm-hmm. weird to say, but... Um, and my whole... I feel so blessed that I, I, for some reason or another, had a lot of spaces that were filled with other artists like that. Mm. Um, you know, whether I was in high school, I was in like a very cool, um, in, in my public school, there was a, a tiny school within it called School Within a School that was all for alternative education. I met so many other artists and weirdos and geniuses that were mm-hmm. just like making art and blowing my mind. Um, it was the first time I saw someone like drink out of a mason jar in school. I remember, you know, when it back when that wasn't a thing, um, <laughs> and just just feeling like, oh yeah, like that mason jar can be for your coffee, absolutely. Um, so, right. you know, it's really it's really this big split between those that say um, what it is and those that say what it can be, and it's as simple as a mason jar. This can be for coffee. It doesn't need to be to just store lentils or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And I think all of our lives are filled with this tension between those that say what it is, this is what it is, Shira, or this is what it can be. And then also how we house that in ourselves, how we understand mm-hmm. our own potential and possibility, and then how we also need structure and to understand the fundamentals, the truths of our lives that are what it is, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I really, I really, that resonates a lot for me, the, the kind of distinction about what it is and what it can be. I personally can really relate to that throughout my life, that feeling of sometimes isolation around being in possession of a sense of what is possible and mm-hmm. being surrounded maybe potentially by people who who aren't necessarily imagining those possibilities and um so I think you know when you when you bring that up it makes me think about the experience you documented in your book um Mm. but we we can talk about it not necessarily as the book but you know that your your experience relating to the reality of mental health you know diagnoses and also totally being able to dig in and and just expand upon what it it can mean or what it could potentially mm-hmm. mean. Um, yeah, yeah. Maybe yeah. you could talk a little bit about how wherever you want to go with that, but in terms of of kind of how you've related to medication to mental health diagnoses and as as kind of like there being an inter like a a potentiality I guess within within your experience totally so my road is in my mind kind of long people have had longer roads and will have longer roads but I think about getting sick at 22 and it was really going from being like 
a straight A student and a top athlete, almost pursuing it in college. And mm-hmm. a real, like, you know, kind of like a little shooting star. Like I was doing really well in my <laughs> community and in high school. And, you know, I was, I was like very functional, high functioning, older sister syndrome, you know, always wanting to like help and be kind of people please in some ways. Mm-hmm. And so when, when I got sick at 22, it wasn't just like, you know, I had grown up with symptoms or I had kind of like, it felt like it really came out of nowhere and it erased me. Um, mm-hmm. And it said like, now you're different. Um, and again, luckily, I think my parents who have gone through their own, and I'm, I'm discovering this as I get older, their own process with my illness and their own difficulties and um, revelations. I lived with them while I, while I healed and I, I still was able to touch into a lot of my joys. And I think our joys are our strength. Mm. And so my joy was making music and I made an album just, just in my bedroom. I was just noodling on all these weird little toys called elephant waltz. And you can get it on my website, you know, just listen to it on my website for free. And it was just children's toys and weird little trinkets because that was what was easy for me to to make with at the time. And I think about that, like making music every day in my bedroom, like when Mm -hmm. I was, you know, at some point and then going to outpatient therapy, like I would go to the hospital, come home, make music, go to the hospital for outpatient, come home. And this is after a full hospitalization for 12 days um, and an emergency hospitalization where I was like really just gone, just not present, not, you know, in and out of a million narratives, hadn't slept in maybe weeks. Um, yeah. Tortured, just tortured. And mm-hmm. so when I think about like the capacity to create, and I didn't write during that time, I felt very limited in terms of my verbal articulation because it felt so mammoth what I had gone through. I just didn't even know how to chip away at it. Mm-hmm. But music was different. Music was something where I could intone like, or, or make sound, but I didn't have to make sense. Um, Mm. And so when I think of the earliest parts of my journey, it was a lot of like being at home, making music, trying to find my footing and trying, my parents were really encouraging of doing things like that would express my joys and my strengths. So I remember I took like a capoeira class, which was utterly confusing just because my mind was so foggy and I was adjusting to Numez, I like could not understand his accent, he had a very thick accent. And I remember I just did it anyway. And it was one of those things like follow your um your strengths, you know, get out of the house while you know, but it was this real up and down figure it out experience of how do I take this new Shira and weave her in with the old Shira who loved all these things, being physical, moving her body, right. um, making music. How do I spread them together? Mm-hmm. And I think when we first get sick, I mean, I certainly cannot speak for everyone, nor would I want to. But for me, there was just, it's really like such a crisis that it's just like management. Yeah. And there isn't even, even though I was in therapy, and even though I was, I mean, I was in group therapy, I was in personal therapy, I still... I was healing and processing, but there's only so much I personally feel that I could have done while just bouncing back into this universe, trying to embody it mm-hmm. um, and, and be embodied in it. And at that time, there was for me, I wasn't taking lithium. I was taking like different medications that 
you know, landing on some cocktail that worked for me took a long time. It was really, really, really physically painful. There were tons of side effects. Yeah. Um, and that's just what it was. And I kind of just, you know, bore down and bared with it um, until we found something that felt helpful. But it still had, you know, I, I gained a ton of weight, which wasn't a huge issue, but it just was a, an effect. Um, and I had other side effects as well. And when I think, so when I think of that first year, part of the way it's couched is just, can we return Shira to Shira? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, but then what happens in the road from there forward, and I only see this now in retrospect, is that it was treated by me and sort of by folks around me as like a one-time thing, even though it runs yes. in my family, bipolar, and, and nobody yes. had really diagnosed me with bipolar. They diagnosed me with depression with psychotic features, which makes me laugh out loud because I'm like, that sounds like mania. <laughs> it sounds like, like bipolar is depression right. with psychotic yeah. features. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's not an exact science yet. We're not doing brain scans yet and seeing, oh, this is the bipolar part of your brain. Um, right. And so it's from there, from like 2006 to about 2009, it was a lot of just like, um, it's. I hesitate to say this, but it was kind of like this capitalist idea of function can she can she just function because she was so dysfunctional and then after that you know I bought into the idea that it was a one-time thing went off my meds and bam you know within a year I was severely depressed and back in a hospital and that's when lithium was brought into my you know um healing plan and I just completely completely changed my whole perspective on medication, I always thought that medication was, honestly, like we use the word gauze, like a type of gauze. Like, okay, we're just containing, we're containing here, we're containing the wound. But lithium, I have a poem in my book called Potion where it says, there's no metaphor here. When I looked at the sky, I saw the sun. And (laughs) it's based on the fact that for a week, you know, I started taking it and I thought it had been cloudy. And I asked my friend, you know, has it been cloudy all week? And she was like, no, it hasn't been cloudy. And so this literal barrier just just released. And I've talked to a lot of people who have effectively taken lithium who have the same kind of um, taking off something that was transposed, feeling Mm -hmm. lifted. And that really shifted my view, but stigma is so strong that three years later, I would fumble and kind of be like, oh, I don't really need to be on my meds, go down on my meds by myself. Yep. End up in acu- acute distress that isolated me from my family, from people I loved. And that, I consider that, that was in 20... So there have been like, let's see, I think that was 2013. And I, I consider that like my rock bottom, even though 2006 mm. was my rock bottom. Really, 2013 was because I was like, how can I be at rock bottom again? Yeah. Shouldn't I have ascended to a new place? Why am I feeling worse than when this first happened to me? And because I had tampered with my own medication, um, to answer your question, there is a sense that we are all working to elucidate the truth about ourselves and about our lives, whether it's coming out or whether it's really owning up to, if you're white, the effects of whiteness. Mm-hmm. Or if you are an immigrant, understanding how that plays into your consciousness. We're all working with such 
intersecting layers. And for me, working with this piece of I have mental illness, there's just so much denial and so much stigma to be swallowed that only, unfortunately, much like alcoholism, I've talked to friends who are alcoholics that say, like, really only when you hit that, below the the strata below rock bottom can you see like oh this is a fact this is one of those things that's never going to change whether it's being an alcoholic or having bipolar and I don't think I fully saw that for about um I guess I was like 20 I was 31 22 so we'll say about nine years it took about nine years nine years of medication and therapy and all the things I was supposed to be doing even with all of that, to really look myself in the face and say, I can't outrun this. I have to, therefore, embrace it. Yeah. And there's so much outrunning that I see um, in myself and in in our culture, too, that the things that help us embrace, and embrace isn't always, you know, joyous. Embrace is sometimes (laughs) sharp and difficult. Um, but the things that push us towards embrace, and I'm really blessed to have a partner who pushes me towards that type of embrace. And I'm, you mm. know, I consider myself somebody who, who walks towards that type of embrace. Mm. Um, and so that, that to me, that strata below rock bottom and the reckoning that happened there was the reason I could write Ozolithium. There was no Ozolithium. There was no idea for it. There was no feeling, owning of it, really until that had happened. There were little bubblings that said, oh, I'm so lucky to take lithium. Yeah. I'm so lucky. Mm-hmm. But then nonetheless, I still, I still messed with the medication. I still believed I wasn't someone who really needed it, even though I'd had three psychotic breaks and, you know, two hospitalizations. <laughs> no, 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 no. This isn't really, right? The egoic part of mm-hmm. you, the part that wants that stability is like, no, 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 no. That's, that's for somebody else. So... Yeah. No, I mean, I, I, yeah, I really appreciate you sharing that. And I think, you know, as a, as a psychotherapist, what I, what I'm really hearing that is super powerful is this idea of like the way you kind of architecturally described, you know, the rock bottom or the outrunning, like the, the idea that we're supposed to that's promoted, I think, in a lot of mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. mental health discourses that, that, you know, we can surpass or overcome, um, you know, it is a very capitalist notion, but, you know, that we are, that what are the, the markers of health? I and mean, we were ta- we are actually taught as, as psychotherapists and mental health providers, we are taught to think about, um, mental illness as something that can potentially be surpassed or out, you know, there's a willpower component to it. You know, it's like, where is your willpower? Um, and I think that your what you're suggesting and I, and particularly for me, what felt so powerful about your book is that, you know, it's not, it was not just, a confrontation with what is and, and a kind of embrace, as you said, with what is, but, you know, the possibility or potentiality again with that word, but the potentiality of what can happen when we Mm -hmm. embrace something that is, that cannot be necessarily altered and is part of the fabric of who we are. Um, and there's a, there's a kind of, 
Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't, it, it is a really powerful counter narrative, I guess, is, mm-hmm. is how I experience it. Um, a very, you know, um, much needed counter narrative. Um, and I think that's what, what I find to be, you know, like the idea of kind of falling in love with lithium, um, <laughs> is, I mean, maybe you can speak a little bit about that. I don't. Yeah. I mean, you're talking about those counter narratives for me, like, again, I had always felt like I saw mental illness or medication as something to bear Yes. as a burden, as, yes. as, as something you, that was true about you, but you wouldn't really talk about, even if you talked about it, it would be limited. Um, and, the, and it felt, I, I've said this before and I, I really mean it, that I felt like a especially lithium, that medication, um, is a boogeyman in our culture. It is so intense or drastic for me now. I'm like, Oh, that's my boo. But I remember when I first started taking it, I was aware of the, of the cultural, um, stigma and kind of ideas around it. And so to, to, there's the thing about the embrace is it really requires clear seeing it doesn't require what you hope is true. And mm. so for me, I hoped that maybe I was mm. just a seer. I was somebody who was just too sensitive in this culture that, you know, I had had past trauma and that's why I was experiencing the symptoms. But it wasn't really flat, that like just flat out mental illness, bipolar. It was just trauma. And there were lots of books that supported this and lots of ideas out there that were like, yeah, mental illness isn't real. Yes. And I bought into it even nine years into my living with it. My own experience got put on the side because of my hope, because of my hope that this just wasn't real, wasn't true, that I was actually somebody who would need to take medication for the rest of my life, that I was somebody who was mentally ill, whatever that meant. And so I think some of that clear seeing mm. comes from being able to really be willing to look at, okay, what are the facts here? And that's where therapy can be super helpful. Um, but I often, I mean, there's so much resistance that we'll meet. I, I've met it as a white person with things that I hope are true about me or I hope are true about culture that are really different than just flat out how I act or who I am or how I speak. And so ownership, taking ownership of, I'm going to step back and really try to have clear seeing, or I'm going to listen to the people around me who have some clear seeing. I always think about that James Baldwin quote, that if I love you, I have to make you conscious of the things you don't see. Mm. and how dangerous that is. If you yes. try to make someone, if you love someone and you make them conscious of the things that they don't see, they, they usually do not want that. That's not something mm-hmm. they're excited about. <laughs> mm-hmm. So imagine all these people with mental illness that I now consider such a intimate, you know, tribe, for lack of a better word, where they are so clear-seeing. They're actually not distorted people who lose their their minds. They're people who go to the edge of the mind and somehow fight their way back to center, incorporating that edge. I mean, that's incredible. Yes. I didn't didn't see it that way before. I saw it as this is a problem. It needs to be met. And it had to do with a lot of my willpower mind, my very go-getter mind um, that I also had to curb and understand in terms of other parts of my life, you know. But... The book itself, I wanted there to be a space to explore 
the fact that there was something that was truly saving my life every single day in all its complexity. And to look at this boogeyman and as often happens when we stare into something shadowy, we start to make out the shapes of it. And then we see, oh my God, this was just a little mop head. I thought it was a person, but it's just a little mop head, you know, or, oh, I thought that was like, uh, something really muscular that's going to jump out of the dark, but it's just a bowl of apples. Like, how could I have thought that? And mm-hmm. so to look into the dark of, of lithium and say, I'm going to really look at you. I'm going to see you from every angle because no one else will. And because society doesn't care. They just want to flatten you. Um, yes. I'm going to take that on. And so it was a process, a real process of being like, am I in love with lithium? How, how could I try to see other parts? Because I wasn't really in the beginning in love with, with it. And so going through this very natural alchemization of my feelings to see through poetry and through poems the multifaceted nature of lithium. And lithium then became this portal into the multifaceted nature of being mentally ill, of what mm-hmm. it means to live with mental illness. Yeah. 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 I think that's really, uh, it's very beautifully said and also... Uh, I'm deeply aware of how complex and multi-layered and painful and all (laughs) sorts of things that process, you know, must have been for you. I guess while you were talking, I was thinking about, you know, when you're talking about moving to the edge and maybe this is partially my own experience doing the work I do and having the, you know, brain chemistry that I do, but thinking about queerness um, Mm. in relationship to some of that navigating, like clear seeing that you were talking about or mm-hmm. pointing out, embodying queerness as a, a form of kind of pointing out things that might not want to be seen in our contemporary culture or heteronormative culture. And and cur- I'm curious, like how you relate, if, if, if at all, to your queerness in this kind of equation of extremity or exploration or potentiality? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So many things come to mind. Mm. I think one thing that comes to mind that is perhaps it'll be dated at one point. Perhaps (laughs) queer folk will will not be um, outsiders. Perhaps it'll be so normal to be queer. But, But growing up, it was not for me. I was usually in secret, uh, you know, queer on a soccer team where nobody said the word, you know, or like people are dropping FAG left and right and nobody mm-hmm. is like really thinking about. And so a lot of it is outsiderness. And I think with any outsiderness, you see the system better than the insider. You see all the mechanics sure. of it. And so there's, there's a piece of it there with um, my own body and mental illness, like queerness being the idea that I'm the site of of um, possibility it's not mm-hmm. even healing or what I'll do it's like uh, me as a being because there's so much potential there as opposed to just like um, the heteronormative of like you know x or y or like this is what's happening yes. or it's not right um, but then there's also um this quote I think about from Ocean Blanc I think about it a lot that says mm. queerness begins with permission to change it invites innovation it is larger than sexuality and gender it is action. Mm. And I think about that in terms of when we queer, 
we are starting from innovating. We're starting from what is beyond the obvious. We're starting from um, what could be more whole. We're starting from the desire to uh, see the world in its interconnected, multifaceted, buzzing, pulsing strangeness. Mm-hmm. As opposed to shepherding the world into two places, um, which heteronormativity always does, dual, it's this or that. Yeah. And so I think, like, it would be, I mean, the mind is queer. <laughs> the brain is queer. We have no idea how it does what it does. We're not even mm-hmm. close. The whole process of being is queer. It's blurry and accurate. It's totally available to us and incomprehensible Mm -hmm. simultaneously. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's so deeply sensuous and it's also capable of creating categories. So there's this sense that um, whenever I've met anyone who tries to tell me about my own body or about my own mind from a place of where I know it's not through, um, well, just let's just say it all. (laughs) They're just telling me. Um, usually it is because they need, um, a pipeline into safety. It's not because they want to do away with the pipeline and exist in this Mm -hmm. ambiguous, um, shifting, ever shifting, um, territory. And, and for me, queerness and artistry, queerness and, and looking at the world like an artist are synonymous. They're the same exact thing. Um, I think when people joke that like the arts are queer, it's because of that. It's because we in our mm-hmm. minds know how to hold the world in a more inventive or, uh, as Ocean said, innovative, you know, way that is larger than sexuality and gender. Um, I will also say that I don't know if it's who I am or what it is, but even in my moments where I've been checking myself in, to a mental hospital by myself, my brain on fire, totally, you know, um, what's it called? Estranged for my parents, like in that exact moment, estranging myself mm-hmm. and saying, I need to do this for myself and you all cannot, are not handling this. Even in those moments, I have felt, and I'm talking about even sometimes where my brain is watching the ceiling tiles move and I'm seeing the ceiling tile moves and saying, what is going on? I know they're not moving, but what is happening? Even in such a distress, mental distress, I always feel like life is so much wider, wilder, more possible than that moment, than what I'm experiencing Mm. in that moment. And, you know, I have felt that way with mental illness more than I felt it with a breakup. Because sometimes with a breakup, I'm like, nope, life is dumb. <laughs> life, is like, <laughs> life, right. life is small. But mm. somehow, because it's the brain itself, I mean, I won't lie, like, it's been scary. But there's also been somehow an access, and I wonder if it is the art itself open mm-hmm. in that moment. Uh, or it's because I have a little bit of a meditative background. It's a meditative self opens and says, there is something else here beyond the mind that is here, right? The mind is seeing ceiling tiles move, but there's something behind that that's capable of holding it and seeing it and not freaking out. And that is very mysterious to me. I can't pretend to understand it. I can't pretend to be like a Buddhist teacher or I'm not like at all, but I've experienced that sense that 
you know, we think our minds and our brains are one thing, and I just know that they are so much more vast and delicate than we could ever imagine. And I feel such a kinship with other people who have experienced specifically delusions, psychosis, hallucinations, because we have the back door into some of the truths that you can't see through the front door of the mind. We see what it's like for the mind to bend. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's a very, um, you know, you're describing something that is very mysterious, but it also what I'm hearing and have been hearing throughout our conversation is that there is a kind of embodied knowing that, that, um, is really helps ground you even in these moments that are, you know, utterly ungrounded (laughs) seemingly and Mm -hmm. very painful and, and complicated, but that there's some sort of embodied, like within your body, you know that there is more, there is a mystery, there is an embrace of that kind of mystery. And that in and of itself can be very, I don't know, I'm not sure if it relieving is the right word, but can bring some ease. Yeah, I think it's part of that clarity we were talking about. It doesn't have to mean... It doesn't have to mean anything or make you do anything, but for me, it feels like, I think ease is a nice word. It feels like, um, you know, the truth of the matter is that we are, we're a system and every part of us is working in concert with the other. And then not only that, but then we are in concert with trees and air and people. And I think the mind, when it breaks down or when you're feeling isolation or depression or any of those things inherently everything is crumbling because your mind is literally not functioning. Right. But even within that dysfunction, that connectedness is still there. It's, it's the premise of our being here. It's our mm-hmm. premise of being alive is that we are a connected system and we're connected to everything else. Mm. So I think there's just a touch of that, that I, that I have felt in crisis, but also while playing soccer in high school, I would feel it, you know, playing and, you're kind of doing it and you're going through emotions and it's difficult. And then one amazing play that you just don't even understand. How was she at the goal? How was I over here? How was this person passing? Like how did it all come together so elegantly? And I think Mm -hmm. that elegance, um, that elegance is very comforting to me. And it happens again as an art maker, you could see it when I'm writing a poem and I'm totally stuck and I don't know where the fuck I'm going. And then something how did it get over here and here and here to come together with an elegance that mm. seems almost um, embedded in the very, like the poem that it was going to be was just embedded in, in this marble, right. That I'm like chip, chip, chipping away at. Yeah. Yeah. And I, again, that's very different. I just want to really want to clarify that that's very different than like a kind of like spiritual woo woo ancestral, whatever, which is, has its own validity. And I don't, you know, I disparage anyone who believes in that, but I'm really speaking about just, foundationally, even without thinking spiritually or religiously, the idea of elegance and interconnectedness, yeah. the idea of oneness, the idea of, of sparks flying in your brain and in the world and connecting things is, for mm. me, foundational. It's like a law, like gravity. It's the way things are. So then to be open to that is my choice or not. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah. you have, you've done a lot already of amazing things with that choice to be open to it. Um, and Thank I'm, you. I'm really, yeah, I'm, I, I love that. And so to <laughs> that end, um, I guess, you know, as we wind down, I wonder if maybe you can just share with the listeners, um, some of what you, um, some of what you have made and some of the things that, um, some of the ways that people can find you and, um, find out about what you're doing. Yeah. Thanks for that chance. I, so my website is either shiraerlichman.com, my name.com or official Either one will take you there. And I will say that, um, Lithium, really, um, putting it out in the world, I almost hesitate to say this because I don't know how, but it feels like, it just feels like I can rest a little. I don't know if that'll make sense to you, Asher, but like, mm. there's a sense of, thank goodness that this was able, that I was able to make this. It feels like I was supposed to make this book. Yeah, definitely. So I feel, I feel really grateful for that because I'm someone who makes a lot and I make a lot of things and some things I don't feel that way about. I just feel like that was fun, you know, but also <laughs> in something where I'm like, I did my job. I feel like I yes. really did my job. Yes. And, um, so that is, you can check out, you know, interviews and, reviews and all kinds of things under books in my website. And there's a few videos and such under about where you can like see me, you know, making art, doing things like that. And then I'm really excited because there's an art tab now on my website where you can go and see kind of everything I'm up to because I tend to be polymathic where I like to make a lot of things. Mm-hmm. And so there's the poems and you can read poems online. You can click on that or there's paintings because I do a lot of visual art. Mm-hmm. Um, the cover of my book is something that I made. And so where the images in the book are all drawings I made. And so that has mm-hmm. paintings up on it. And then I'm really excited because I just put up, I think it's about, let's see, 2002 is when I released my first EP, which was on my bedroom floor. I recorded five songs when I was heartbroken as one does. Mm -hmm. And so from 2002 Uh to, um, 2017, I have all my albums. I think it's like 11 albums that are now on the website. They're really easy to navigate and listen to. Um, Alison Waltz is the one I was talking about. That was Mm -hmm. when I was actually like just hospitalized and went home and made these, uh, these songs. I made a hundred limited edition tapes which I've sent into the world after that. Mm. Um, but so, yeah, the music that is on there, I also have in the book section, you'll see, I released a children's book called Behold, a Friendship Book uh, in April of 2019. And that is a um, a book about my love of compound words like toothbrush or windbreaker or behold. And it's all about like two different things that come together like friends to make a new thing. And mm-hmm. so that children's book, you can also order it through there or just check it out on there. All my escapades are at shareorlooking.com. Amazing. I love it. And also your Instagram is quite <laughs> lovely as well. Thank you. Um, Thank you. And I think you're at sheer awe. You got it. Yeah. yeah. Cool. Well, Shira, it was a beautiful conversation. Thank you for taking the time. And um, I really appreciate it and appreciate yeah, you. Yeah, and I just, I want to say thank you too, like for creating 
a space like this. I think it's a really rare space. Mm-hmm. Um, and you've had some beautiful, beautiful people on your podcast, and I. It's just a real service, and it is really. Um, it's difficult work to really listen and to really invite through questions. So thank you so much for that. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. Yeah, I appreciate it for sure. 